So Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Thank you, Ada, and it's great to be with you again today. Uh, I had a broken sort of series with you. I was with you for two weeks and last week wasn't here and back again. And the reason for that was because last week uh, the Trinity Church at Tonsley launched. They had their public launch there. Uh, so Colonel Lake Gardens planted uh, further down into that sort of uh, industrial revitalized zone. In fact, the uh, the new sort of campus pastor there, uh, Cam Maxwell, des- described it as the industrial cathedral of the South. Uh, it's all glass and metal and uh, very, uh, very edgy, but it was a great day. There were uh, I met four families that had come just because of the letterbox drop. Uh, they just received something and came. I think that's that's always my uh, my high point. God's obviously at work if people respond to things in their letterbox, you know, and uh, they were there. But you know, just. It just showed me that God is really at work. I met a number of non-Christians in that context as well. So it was just just a very encouraging morning. Uh, and of course, next week, Campbelltown will have their public launch uh, as well. So a new church starting at Campbelltown. It'd be great to be praying that God draws uh, similar people who are searching uh, because we know that uh, we live in a, a culture and a context where people really are uh, looking for meaning and significance and purpose. And uh, for us, we know only Jesus is the one who can provide that. So, And know that everyone in the network will be pr- praying for you too. 
and especially as we go towards Easter. That might be a, a real clarion call for people to come under the sound of uh, the wonderful gospel that we have in Jesus. Well, we turn to uh, Matthew chapter 12. I felt quite inspired by Rowdy Randy and uh, tempted, let me say, to sing your song. Uh, but you'll be pleased to know that I'm resisting temptation. Uh, if you've heard me sing, you'll know exactly why I'm saying that. But let me, uh, let me pray. If you've got your Bibles there, flick it open to chapter 12. doesn't matter if you don't. The verses will, uh, uh, by virtue of the uh, able assistance I have to my right here, they'll, they'll come up on the screen. So as we work through this chapter, you'll get a good feel as to where we're going. But let me, let me pray as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we consider uh, Jesus, uh, we'll be, our hearts will be enlarged. Um, will be filled with the knowledge of your grace and mercy towards us and so encouraged as we reflect on how kind uh, you have been towards every single one of us and to our world. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Muhammad Ali was probably one of the greatest boxers uh, ever seen. In fact, um, in the 20th century, certainly the outstanding boxer. And here's a picture of him standing over a vanquished opponent. Uh, he didn't have a small ego, uh, Muhammad Ali. So those of you who have ever heard him say anything will know that he didn't, he didn't struggle for self-confidence. Uh, here's one of the quotes that he made, uh, one of the things he said just before a world championship fight with a guy called Joe Frazier. Uh, he said this, There seems to be some confusion, and we're going to clear up this confusion on March 8. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can beat me i'm too smart i'm too pretty i am the greatest i am the king i should be a postage stamp because that's the only way anyone can lick me huh? <laughs> isn't that terrible that's very typical though uh, i came across this uh uh a quote from uh, an interview with Kanye, so a pop star. Some of you will probably know him, more contemporary than Muhammad Ali. Uh, this is the guy who was considering running for president of the United States of America. Uh, so he doesn't lack any sense of self-confidence either, I suspect. So he was asked this question on television. He was asked how he would describe himself. And he said, he said, for me, yeah, I, I am a, creative genius you know he said this there's no other way to word it you know again not short on self-confidence as i i understand it you know now most of us have been brought up uh, by parents who taught us not to brag we know that it's not appropriate to big note yourself and so we avoid doing that or if we want to do it we do it much more subtly than both these guys did in that interview but here's the interesting thing. As we turn to Matthew chapter 12, what we have is Jesus making extraordinary claims about himself. Claims that make people like Muhammad Ali and Kanye seem positively humble by comparison. And yet the thing is, because we're 21st century Australians, we're not 1st uh, century Middle Easterners, uh, it's easy to miss uh, what's being said here. So let's dig into chapter 12 and see if we can see what's going on in this chapter. When we start at uh, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, we dive right into the middle of what is a Sabbath day dispute. Okay, Chapter 12, verse 1 starts off, at 
that time. Okay, so what we're doing is building on what's immediately come before in chapter 11. Back in chapter 11, verse 28, uh, Jesus, uh, if you recall, we looked at this two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, he says he can give people rest. And that's a, it's, it's a technical phrase, really, that takes us back to the start of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, there we hear that God rested on the seventh day. And when it says that God rested, it's not, it's not saying he took, took a holiday and just put his feet up. That's not the point being made. But rather, in Genesis chapter 2, it says he rested from all his work in creating. That is, he continued to sustain and uphold the whole universe, uh, but he'd finished his work of creation. So he rested in that sense. Now, what happened was, as, the, uh, as history unfolded with the Jewish nation, uh, they actually uh, were given this day of rest by God, a Sabbath rest. And so what they would do is every seventh day they would down tools and just have a complete break. But, you know, the whole point of the Sabbath was not so much to rest, that is, to stop doing work. It was actually to stop doing work so they could celebrate the kindness of God towards them. That was the whole point of the Sabbath, celebrating what a great God that they had. And now we come to chapter 12, and the Sabbath rest or the Sabbath day becomes a trigger for a conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. Right? Verses 1 and 2. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and to eat them. Okay, seems pretty normal. You're out bushwalking, you see some... Uh, wild blackberries growing beside the path. You pick some, you eat them. You know, there's no, no big deal here at all, is there? Look at verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, of course, if you're someone who's been reading the Bible for a while, you know that when certain people turn up, it evokes a response. So when Jesus... Then we cheer, you know, we go, hooray, you know, they're the good guys, uh, always dressed in white, you know, it's positive. When the Pharisees turn up, uh, we boo, we hiss, you know, hooray for Jesus, boo for the Pharisees. That's just the way in which we operate. But I want you to remember that the Pharisees were actually the fine, upstanding Rotarians of the first century, right? They saw themselves as the good guys who really did work hard to obey and keep the law. But here's the thing. Uh, the Pharisees had totally missed the point of the Sabbath. As I said before, it was a day to rejoice in God's grace. But the Pharisees had turned it into a day of you know, mean, nitpicking legalism. The Pharisees had actually created over 600 rules uh, on how to live that they added to the Bible. And there were, I need a different microphone, do I? And you can hear me again. That's always good, isn't it? Yeah. The Pharisees had, had um, added to the Bible with over 600 rules about how people should live. And over 40 of those related to what people should do on the Sabbath. Okay, so they were good at creating rules. And what they'd done is they had burdened people 
with enormous obligations and responsibilities. So here we have an inflammatory situation where Jesus and his disciples had broken one of their man-made rules and they're in this sort of fight together. Now, when you get caught in sort of a a situation of conflict with people, and we're all wired differently, uh, some of us are wired to fight. You know, we sort of get our back up and we don't back off at all. You know, and some of us are more adept at flight. You know, we tend to smooth the waters over and retreat and try and, you know, cover off. I'm not sure which which you are, uh, but those are the two normal things. Back in Proverbs 15 verse 1, and we read this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So in this context, you sort of think, well, Jesus, he could have gone with the gentle answer approach. Hey, calm down, everybody. We've got a misunderstanding on our hands. You know, look, let's just sort of put this behind us. We'll just move on, you know. No, no foul, no harm done. But he doesn't. Jesus actually here pours gasoline onto the fire, right? He really does provoke an extraordinary response with a series of I am the greatest comments. Let's look at them together. Notice he says, he is greater than King David, verse 3. He says, haven't you you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which wasn't lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Right, we're being taken back to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel uh, chapter, chapter 21. And there David actually did you know, to take the, the bread that was set aside uh, for use, consecrated for, for God. Um, he ignored the Old Testament law at this point because there was a need. Now, you can almost hear the Pharisees ticking over in their brain. They say, yeah, sure, Jesus, but he was the greatest king Israel has ever had. You know? uh, so fair enough for him to do it. Uh, but it begs a question, you see. So I want you to imagine that, um, say, President Biden, US president, came and visited Adelaide. Now, what would happen when he uh, flew into Adelaide Airport? Well, I know the, you know the security would be enormous. Uh, say he was coming into a government house to stay or something like that, they'd, he'd have a limousine, armoured cars, they'd change all the lights, they'd have police on every single light, there'd be green lights all the way through the government house. And you might say, well, how come President Biden gets that treatment and I don't, you know, when I land at Adelaide Airport? Right? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? You're not the President of the United States. That's the reason why. But it's interesting here, isn't it? Jesus is saying he is a king greater than King David. He's saying, I am standing in front of you and I am the great king of Israel. You see how provocative he's being at this point? And he goes on. He says, as Randy reminded us a little while ago, he says, I'm greater than the temple. He's just trying to drive the point home here. Verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? The point's simple, that the law actually requires the priests, uh, permits them uh, to actually work on the Sabbath. 
And again, you can hear the Pharisees ticking it over in their brain, can't you? Jesus, you know, are you saying you're a priest? You know, sort of uh, big noting yourself in that way. And of course, Jesus isn't. He's saying he's greater than a priest. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The, the temple rep- represented the very presence of God among his people. But God was never limited by the temple or, in fact, any building. And Jesus says, I am God in your midst. It's an extraordinary claim. And then he goes on and explains how he's greater than the Sabbath, verse 8. The Son of Man, Jesus' way of talking about himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is such a big claim. I stand above the Sabbath. I give the rest that was promised back in Genesis chapter 2. I am God. But we all know that um, words are cheap, don't we? I go back to Muhammad Ali. Uh, After he made those statements, you're not a man alive who can beat me. A couple of days later, he had his world championship fight with Joe Frazier and got beaten. That's what happened to him on that occasion. And... Here we come to verse 9. It's the same day, a Sabbath day, and Jesus makes his way into the synagogue. And there's a man with a disability, has a shriveled hand. We're not sure if it's an arthritic condition. We don't, we don't know. We're not given the medical details of what's going on, but he is there. But notice what it says in verse 10. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now, two things that's worthwhile knowing at this point. The first is, it would have been strikingly unusual uh, for a man with a shriveled hand with a disability like that uh, to be in the middle of the synagogue gathering. They were generally excluded from those sort of gatherings for all sorts of different reasons. So the fact that he was there, you immediately know there's a setup happening. Right? There's, there's a plot to catch... Jesus. And the second thing is this. The Pharisees, as I explained, had lots of rules, and a lot of them related to the Sabbath. And here was one of their rules. You could only heal on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life or death. Otherwise, you'd do it on the following day, you know, if, if there was no risk to life. Verse 11. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, says Jesus, will you not take hold of it? And lift it out. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And you can hear Jesus, can't you? You can hear the uh, uh, the heartbreak really in his voice. Here we have a man in desperate need has been ostracized and isolated from society all throughout his life, really needs the touch of God. And you want me to say to him, just come back tomorrow, we'll see you then? Really? And the hardness of their hearts is exposed, isn't it? And Jesus heals him 
on the spot. Now, how do you think this bloke felt? Uh, liberated, uh, restored, whole, accepted, extraordinarily thankful, I would have thought. What do you reckon the crowd were thinking? You know, who were gathered on I bet you they didn't go home and talk about the sermon. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> I reckon that would have been riveting news on that occasion. And what about the Pharisees? Uh, they're thinking, when Jesus does it, this is what they're thinking, gotcha. Verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There's a great irony here, isn't there? You can't work on the Sabbath, but it's okay to plan how to kill somebody. You can plan how to kill the Lord of the Sabbath. The one who came to push back the ravages of our sinful world. The one who gives rest to the weary. Who restores broken human beings. It is just so sad. I think there are, there are lots of things we could explore from this sort of encounter. And lots of things we could reflect on. Yeah, we could talk about the danger of, of legalism. Yeah, the, the Pharisees had a wonderful way of turning a day of refreshment and joy into a day of mean-picking, mean-spirited legalism. And, you know, churches and believers over the years, uh, we have had a habit of doing the same. You know, we focus on uh, speaking about what people can't do, especially on the Sabbath. You know, become spot it and stop it clubs you know that's um, easy for us to fall in but you know when you read through uh, the new testament when you're confronted with jesus the overwhelming senses of the fact that a relationship with god through jesus is something that is profoundly full of joy uh, one full of thankfulness But rather than focusing on us and, uh, you know, what we should do, you know, turn a sermon against, you know, talk against legalism into a sermon on legalism, you know, uh, I thought what we do just for a moment is think about Jesus and, uh, you know, how he impacts you as you read through this, this account. Some of you will know Jeff Lynn. Jeff is uh, a guy who works in the network. He actually heads up the team in the city ministry right now. And for many years, Jeff worked on university campuses. And he'd sit down regularly with people who were wanting to explore what, you know, Jesus, who he was and what he'd come to do. And generally he would say, what I'd love to do is read the Bible with you. And I want you to answer two questions for me as we do that over a period of weeks. The first is... What do you think about Jesus? Now, what do you think about him? And then the second one, which I thought was a really telling question, is do you like him? What do you think about him? Do you like him? See, what we discover in this encounter is the great mercy of God through Jesus. Back in verse 7, Jesus says this, If you'd known... What these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned 
the innocent. Now, at this point, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Hosea 6.6. And the, the people uh, that Hosea was, was writing to, they relied on their sacrifices, their obedience, uh, as a basis for their confidence before God. That was the whole thing that was being railed against in this letter. So focused on keeping the rules that they lost sight of God's grace and mercy. Jesus here is just so full of mercy and grace. He dispenses healing and wholeness uh, to a man with a shriveled hand, forgiveness to sinners, rest in a relationship with God. But here's the thing, the, the Pharisees, they don't, they don't see their need for mercy. If they had, they would have just fallen to their knees before the Lord Jesus and begged for his forgiveness. So I guess I want to ask us today, do, do we know? Do we know the mercy of God? Do, do you know the Do I know the mercy of God? Are these realities, these are the heart, the, you know, the, the thing that pumps your heart is knowing this mercy. I reckon there are two tests that you can apply just as you think through this. I reckon there is a risk, I'm speaking to believers right now, there's a risk as you go on the Christian life that you feel like things are pretty good between you and God because you've got a life that looks pretty Christian. You know, you're pretty well ticking all the boxes as far as you can tell. You know, you haven't murdered anyone this week, stolen from Coles. You know, you're not doing too badly, really, on those sort of fronts. But here's the thing. None of us are ever, 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 ever acceptable to God based on anything we have done. Never. Not when you become a Christian. Not if you go on as a Christian. Never. Always because of the mercy do we have this relationship We are secure with God because of his mercy, not our performance. And then the second test is this, I think. If you know the mercy of God, then it seems to me we will have mercy. Yeah, the Pharisees in this encounter, they see a relationship with God based on performance. They they see it as based on what, what they do. And it means that as they faced... Uh, the world around them, they just kept imposing rules on people to tell them what they should be doing to make themselves right with God. That was just the way in which they functioned or operated. And I think it is a risk for believers in our culture right now to adopt the same sort of approach. Uh, It's very easy for us uh, to observe a culture that's moving further and further away from God a culture that uh, is becoming more secular, uh, a culture that expresses that in a whole range of different ways, you know, whether it comes to um, sexual ethics or laws around euthanasia or we can find ourselves just denouncing the behaviour of our culture or the world around us. But it seems to me that the things, the thing that will cause our heart to beat will be the same thing we observe in Jesus that heartfelt compassion for those who are a long way from God not sort of bugling 
change your life to make yourself acceptable to God. But here the grace and mercy towards God, towards people like you and me, who can only stand right with God because of his kindness to us. The mercy of God in the Lord Jesus shines through so powerfully here. But also, do you pick up the uh, the profound nature of Jesus' humility? He is, he is the greatest. He is God. He strides the planet with extraordinary power, but he's not self-promoting. Here in chapter 12, uh, he's done another amazing miracle, and you can see a stack of those as you go through Matthew's gospel. And he is at the height of his popularity at this point. Right, this is the time when his miners and his disciples, they need to set up the world speaking tour, you know, like uh, get him out there, you know, let's uh, capitalise on uh, who he is. Verse 15. But aware of this, particularly the plans of the Pharisees to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. And you might think, ah, you know, this is self-protection, go into hiding, smart move. But verse 16. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. So again, the extraordinary mercy of God uh, evident here. And then he warned them not to tell others about him. See, it's not self-promoting at this point. And then we get this extended quote from Isaiah 42. Let me read it to you. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nation. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. I want you to notice there's no false humility with Jesus. It's not sort of, you know, oh, shucks, I got lucky with that last miracle, you know, the guy with the withered hand. Nothing like that is going on. He's not sort of, oh, yeah, you know, I am God. You know? <laughs> no, big, no biggie, you know, it's not like that. But ultimately, I think you want to see that his humility is measured by the way in which he serves others, by his gentle grace. The fragile, they're cared for. Justice, the world puts their hope on him. You see, ultimately the trajectory of this gospel, the trajectory of Jesus' life, humility is measured by his self-sacrifice. See, at this point Jesus withdraws and it's because he is on the way to Jerusalem and his death on a cross, his resurrection to life, events that we'll celebrate in just a couple of weeks' time with a great focus that we celebrate them every week. See, here's the thing. We all deserve the wrath of God for our sin, for our failure to treat God properly, for our turning our backs on him. But Jesus served every single one of us by dying on a cross for the sin of the whole world, but for your sin and for my sin as well. And the justice of God is met. Payment for sin is made. And God extends mercy to anyone who will put their trust in Jesus. 
It's not what we do for God, but it is what Jesus has done for us. I love um, the questions that Jeff then asks. He asks, you know, uh, who do you think Jesus is? And the answer from this passage, it's really clear, isn't it? He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who gives rest, the God who rules over eternity, the one who serves profoundly by going to the cross and giving his life so that we can enjoy the mercy of God. That's who he is. And Jeff Lynn's second question, and do you like him? I don't know about you, but I really like him. <laughs> I really like him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your wonderful grace towards us in your son. Uh, Father, we, we're just captivated by the Lord Jesus here. Um, he shows extraordinary courage, but it's a courage because of his great desire to show mercy and uh, to save and rescue people. Uh, Father, we pray that there will be people just captivated by him uh, in our hearts and our minds and our behaviours who, who walk day by day, step by step, full of knowledge of the mercy you've shown us and delighting in your kindness towards us. And Father, we pray we'll never lose that. Uh, there will always be a people who speak of this wonderful grace of God to a world that desperately needs to know it. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.